I mean, like, what, what am I supposed to say to them? I know it. I document it. All right. This is fucking science. You have to ask yourself, really, what am I gonna say to them? I know it. I document it. All right. This is fucking science. This is fucking science. This is fucking what am I gonna say to them? This is fucking science. 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 Greetings, friends. I'm Arnold Schroeder, and this is Fight Like an Animal. You can find episode bibliographies, excerpts from my forthcoming book, as well as other texts, and my contact information at againstthe-internet.com. And if you want to support the psychotic, never-ending struggle that both goes into making this podcast in particular and comprises my life in general— please check out patreon.com slash biological singularity, where you will also find occasional fictional installments of this work, Fight Like an Animal 2050, wherein we describe the revolutionary adventures that allowed it to be the case that there was still such a thing as people doing things like making podcasts 30 years into the future. Wolfgang Metzer very wittily said of some philosophers, There are some people who are incurably prevented, by theoretical considerations of cognition, from using their senses for the purpose of scientific understanding. Paradoxically, this applies just as aptly to many otherwise extremely perceptive research workers, who believe that they are operating in a particularly objective and scientific manner by banishing, as far as possible, their own perception from their methodology. The illogicality of this procedure, in terms of perceptual theory, is quite easily demonstrated, more easily than the illogicality of the philosophers ridiculed by Metzger. The core of the problem is that perception is accredited with scientific legitimacy where it is used for reading a measuring instrument, but not where it is used for direct observation of a natural process. Conrad Lorenz, Gestalt Perception as a Source of Scientific Knowledge, 1959. On January 6, 1918, the mathematician George Cantor died in a psychiatric hospital in the German industrial city of Halle, where he was a professor. He is described by his biographer Amir Axel in the book The Mystery of the Aleph, Mathematics, the Kabbalah, and the Search for Infinity, at the time of his death, as emaciated and weary. This was partially because of the deprivations associated with World War I, which was wrapping up, but also because he had devoted a good deal of his life to questions about the nature of infinity, the answers to which, if they exist at all, had evaded him. The lifelong search for unattainable certainty had taken a progressive toll on him, punctuated by acute crises in which Cantor would find himself hospitalized. Here's how Axel describes it. Cantor started as a privet docent, uh, you know, with apologies to anybody listening who can pronounce German, the uh, listeners from Germany, for instance. But Cantor started as a private docent, the entry-level academic job at German universities of the time. Within a few years of hard work, he was promoted to associate professor and shortly afterwards a professor of mathematics. Cantor became involved in intensive research in mathematics, but in the midst of his most productive period, something strange happened, which put a temporary end to his work. In the summer of 1884, George Cantor was struck by deep depression. From May through June of that year, he was immobilized, 
unable to work or do much of anything. His condition distressed his wife and children and perplexed his colleagues who saw in him a mathematician aspiring to great heights. However, without any professional help or medication, Cantor recovered from his illness and returned to normal life. Afterwards, he wrote a letter to a close friend, the Swedish mathematician Gösta Mittag Leffler, describing his illness and mentioning that just before the mental breakdown, he was working on the continuum problem. A little later, he says, We don't know the precise nature of Cantor's illness. Some of his reported symptoms resemble those associated with bipolar disorder or manic depression. But the causes of this mental illness are now generally attributed to genetic factors, and in Cantor's ancestry, there are no known cases of the disease. I have to just step out of the reading for a second and be like, you know, psychiatric afflictions wouldn't be on the vast increase if it were true that you could always trace cases back to people's ancestry. But anyway, one fact is known about George Cantor's illness. His attacks of depression were all associated with periods in which he was thinking about what is now known as Cantor's continuum hypothesis. He was contemplating a single mathematical expression, an equation using the Hebrew letter Aleph. And that equation, friends, is 2 to the power of Aleph sub 0 equals Aleph sub 1. Two different Alephs that represent two different magnitudes of infinity. I, If I had to give, because I do, you know, um, a description of Cantor's research that employs a level of concision that could be described as verging on violence in its uh, degree of radical simplification, I would just say that what Cantor's continuum hypothesis concerns itself with is the notion that there might be uh, different magnitudes of infinity, uh, a sequence of them that corresponds in many regards to the sequence of numbers, the finite numbers that we know and love so well. Um, so not just more than one magnitude of infinity, but in fact, just as with numbers, um, an infinite number of infinite magnitudes. Um, as Axel says, this equation is a statement about the nature of infinity. A century and a third after Cantor first wrote it down, the equation, along with its properties and implications, remains the most enduring mystery in mathematics. It's always the case with this sort of thing that one can choose to be utterly awed by it or to sort of wonder if this has anything to do with its describing a truly paradoxical nature of the reality we inhabit or if it's just a paradoxical nature of something that happens when you take pen to paper, right? If it's just, if it's just like a system, a highly contingent system that humans have happened to create that is fraught with mystery and paradox in certain regards, um, and, you know, it's like I even go back and forth on this sometimes, like reading through Axel's book. There are moments when it just feels like a level of abstraction that has become kind of meaningless if indeed what we're talking about when we're using math is something that describes the world we live in. For instance, Cantor's work um, is pretty foundational to what we now call set theory um, and Axel says, one of the key elements of set theory is the famous empty set or null set, the set containing no elements at all. The empty set is everywhere. It is a subset of every set. Why? By contradiction, for the statement not to be true, we would have to exhibit a point that belongs to the empty set but does not belong to a given set A. But since the empty set has no elements, no such element can be exhibited. So the statement is true. Ah, right. Like 
I'm either shocked and baffled by the nature of the universe that we inhabit, or I'm kind of not. Um, but I think that what is perhaps particularly vexatious for Cantor and others who are so intrigued by his hypothesis is that what he's describing, set theory, is foundational to so much other mathematics. So all of the math that feels really intuitive and um, immediately comprehensible and like it absolutely does describe in this exquisite, uh, with, with like a, an exquisite degree, an almost uncanny degree of, of precision and power, the universe we inhabit is something that, I mean, I never went past calculus, but it's something that a lot of people who spend any time at all engage with mathematics get to where ultimately they're kind of like, is, are, you know, like, we converge on such useful explanations of natural phenomena from so many different starting points with mathematics. It's so elegantly described in such a vastly integrated fashion, such a huge extent of the, of the phenomena that we can observe that um, it just starts to seem, a, you know, pretty wild. Like E.O. Wilson said, mathematics is the language of nature. And at a certain point, it, you know, it's actually strange when you think about it that nature has a language. Um, and, you know, after a while of being really engaged with almost any kind of math, a lot of people get there where they're really like, so is this just something people came up with? Or is this the actual kind of like operating system of the universe, right? You know, is this the code of the simulation we inhabit or, or whatever? Um, and, you know, and you can, you can go all kinds of different places with this. There's the, there's the other, there's the other way to look at it where, it's the case that you make some statement that, you know, you make a statement that it couldn't be the case that we would have developed consciousness and, you know, such an exquisitely, elaborately integrated, complex system um, underlying the consciousness that we experience, you know, i.e. our biology and the vast interconnected uh, complex systems in which uh, biological systems are embedded. Um, if we didn't live in a universe that had these very like sort of precise rules and these very like elegant interrelating laws and properties that could all be described in a unified language, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, you know, if, if one is somebody that takes math kind of seriously as something that does a good job of describing uh, the universe we inhabit, then it's kind of um, disturbing or you know, whatever, um, at least gives you some something to really think about, if not sends you to the psych ward, to, to know that underlying it, that the fundamental logical architecture of this system that so uncannily and aptly and precisely and rigorously describes so much of what we observe has at its very, in its very foundations, utter paradox and uh, an inconsistency and incomprehensibility. Uh, as Axel says, set theory leads invariably to great paradoxes. Since the foundations of mathematics consist of the theory of sets along with elements of mathematical logic, the paradoxes of set theory make the entire foundations of mathematics problematic. We may find it hard to believe that an elegant and seemingly very simple system of numbers and operations such as addition and multiplication Elements so intuitive that children learn them in school should be fraught with holes and logical hurdles, but such is mathematics. And when infinity is added to the mixture, the pitfalls multiply. 
They certainly do. And they multiplied to such an extent that it drove Cantor absolutely mad. Now, one can also make the argument that it's actually utterly unsurprising that the sort of like foundational logical architecture underlying mathematics would, uh, would be fraught with paradox because, sure, there's a sense in which uh, what math describes is very like obviously and intuitively apparently real right? You know, you have two fingers and then you have two more fingers and you've counted four fingers and two fingers and two fingers always equals four, just like two and two crows or whatever, right? Two plus two equals four is a, a an expression that is used over and over again in various cultural materials to describe something that is irrefutably true. But of course, there's some level on which if you ask, okay, really though, you know, are your two fingers and your other two fingers or the two crows and the other two crows actually discrete entities? Uh, in certain respects, they are. You know, there's ways to conceptualize them as such, but they're also utterly continuous with all of the rest of reality, right? And they're also not actually identical to one another. Um, and so one could actually guess if we look at reality in that way, if we say that navigating reality and comprehending it in a meaningful sense requires both understanding that everything is discrete and can be subject to reductionism and that everything is absolutely continuous, um, maybe we wouldn't be all that surprised that counting things both works and doesn't really work. Um, but you know, we could also say that what Cantor experienced and what drove him mad, rather what Cant the theories that Cantor developed that drove him mad are kind of like mathematical counterparts to something that just sort of happens over and over again, regardless of the domain of inquiry, that um, whether we're just making intuitive observations about the world or whether we're doing particle physics, sooner or later, when we when we ask more and more fundamental questions, we kind of always get to this place that we can't quite comprehend, this place that is just utterly fraught with paradox. Um, and, you know, so, so of course, right, this is like, in a sense, this is what we would expect if mathematics is the language of the universe, we would kind of expect its fundamental logical architecture to have some pretty bizarre aspects to it if... It's true that as we reduce matter to smaller and smaller scales of analysis, it starts to behave in ways where, you know, it's like there's no locality anymore and what happens to one particle affects, uh, you know, an entangled particle on the other side of the universe simultaneously and it responds to observation and it's both in one place but also another place and, you know, all that good stuff, which on some level, I, I don't know if you're a, if you're a fan of physics YouTube, which is, is where I get my physics. I've, you know, read like maybe a couple books that talk about, uh, that talk about advanced physics. And then mostly I just watch YouTube videos at this point. Um, it's not a subject I'm, I claim any extensive, you know, even amateur knowledge of, and certainly not expertise, but I have noticed this kind of like fatalism creeping into, uh, people's accounts. Like physicists seem to have kind of gotten to this place where they're actually very, casually comfortable 
with just sort of throwing around radically counterintuitive possibilities about the nature of reality and just being like, sure, totally possible. Who knows? Could be something entirely different. Like reality may or may not, you know, are there infinite multiple, you know, are there an infinity of parallel universes? Ah, could be, you know, is the universe flat? Is the universe endless? I might be true, you know, um, and, and it's kind of fun. I, I kind of like I kind of like physics YouTube in that particular regard. It's sort of half of what I watch it for at this point. Um, but the point is that in those cases, people have decided not to go insane from this um, and to kind of embrace the mystery. And there is a danger in that. And I think that danger is very evident in in our culture where. People get to this point, whether they actually, you know, most of them didn't ever do any particle physics or anything like that themselves. Um, but, you know, where people hear about how physics, when it gets to a certain level of advanced inquiry, starts to break down into utter mystery. And they kind of use it as a, as a basis for, um, I don't know, sort of disregarding rigor altogether for a, a fatalistic em embrace of the notion that everything is just unknowable, so there shouldn't be any evidentiary standards, and one shouldn't make an effort to comprehend this unknowable reality we live in. And I would argue that the path that one must take to knowledge, if one is climbing the tree of knowledge or attempting to ascend a mountain, that the peak of which is some great insight, you know, from the from which if you attain the heights of this mountain, one sees the universe or the world to, um, you know, at the greatest distances possible and comprehends the most of it um, that one can, one must walk this very narrow path between a, a kind of fatalistic disregard for a process of rigorous inquiry and, a, and scientism, right? Between um, chaotic mysticism and meaninglessness and an overstated confidence in our ability to know anything. Um, and that the, the, greatest, the greatest pursuit of knowledge can only occur if we navigate a sort of ceaseless, complex, never resolving tension between these two poles, right? Um, we neither, we, we accept that the universe is unknowable and we also subject ourselves to uh, the demands of the greatest rigor possible, to the most, uh, the most exacting and uh, fastidious inquiry into the nature of the unknowable universe that we can make. And to some extent, even though he didn't say it so explicitly to my knowledge, uh, Cantor's work was picked up by Gordel who also kind of started to go pretty, pretty crazy from looking into this. And at some point, mathematicians other than Cantor wrote proofs that um, both established that the continuum hypothesis was consistent with the axiomatic logic of all the rest of mathematics and that it could never be proved within that system. It, it, the, the hypothesis has been both proved and disproved in some sense, but that's, that's kind of the verdict, is that it is both consistent with and inconsistent with uh, the axiomatic logic underlying math. So, you know, Gordel decided not to spend the rest of his life in a psych ward, and he said exactly that. He said that, you know, our perceptual capacities are what they are, 
and the universe is what it is, and there's no a priori guarantee that our perceptual capacities are entirely adequate to the task of comprehending every damn thing about the world we inhabit. And that's the right perspective to have, because it's not like he didn't try, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like he used it as an excuse not to learn math or anything like that. So I think in some sense, he, he kind of navigated that tension. He walked that narrow path. And just to be clear, it's not simply my contention that, and I do believe that an implicit or explicit um, belief of something to this effect is one, is to some extent a property of institutional science that I am militating against in this episode. We're, we're going to traverse some interesting and varied territory, which will, on a number of occasions, border on the mystical, but ultimately, this is a discussion of the relationship between science and power, continuing uh, discussions of this broad theme that were initiated in series like The Scientific Militant and the Varieties of Scientific Revolution. Indeed, this episode would have been Varieties of Scientific Revolution Part 3 if it hadn't simply been so long since the last episode uh, because of my kidney transplant. But... Um, it is not my claim, um, as one might infer from the way that science is often discussed, that I believe that the world itself has a sort of static, non-contradictory, non-paradoxical nature, but that it's solely owing to the limitations of our perception that we have to navigate paradox I really believe the universe is actually like that, right? And that, as I've discussed in the past, I think that there is a compelling case to be made, which I'm going to try to justify a little more substantially than perhaps I have in the past, that reality fundamentally consists of a tension between opposites. Maybe there could have been a reality that didn't, but I think it wouldn't be very interesting that if we're here observing reality, it implies a, a set of complex dynamics that have precisely that characteristic. Um, and, you know, I, but I talked in the past, for instance, about how if we make the fundamental assumption, for instance, that our brains are here to process the nature of reality. And so if it is indeed the case as... Um, as has been argued by people like Ian McGillchrist, um, even if to some extent, you know, we might, we or I might express some caution about a wholehearted embrace of all of what he says, you know, that uh, the notion that our brain hemispheres, you know, like, so the structure of our brains should in fact reflect something about the structure of reality in the fact that our brains consist of two hemispheres that are, are engaged in radically different information processing styles would be one of the many indications that reality itself is like that, utterly wrought with paradox, and that complexity emerges from 
um, phenomena navigating an incredibly narrow pathway, an incredibly narrow passage between two more or less opposed states. Um, and this comes up over and over again in all of these different domains of inquiry and knowledge. So to give, uh, to give an example from well outside abstract mathematics about infinity, here is um, Humberto Maturana and Francisco Valera's uh, The Tree of Knowledge, The Biological Roots of Human Understanding, saying something very similar about understanding why we understand anything, about understanding our consciousness, our knowledge, and our minds. Um, doing that, of course, will put us in a circular situation. It might leave us a bit dizzy, as though following the hands drawn by Escher. This dizziness results from our not having a fixed point of reference to which we can anchor our descriptions in order to affirm and defend their validity. In effect, if we presuppose the existence of an objective world, Independent of us as observers and accessible to our knowledge through our nervous system, we cannot understand how our nervous system functions in its structural dynamics and still produce a representation of this independent world. But if we do not presuppose an objective world independent of us as observers, it seems we are accepting that everything is relative and anything is possible in the denial of all lawfulness. Thus, we confront the problem of understanding how our experience, the praxis of our living, is coupled to a surrounding world which appears filled with regularities that are at every instant the result of our biological and social histories. Again, we must walk on the razor's edge, eschewing the extremes of representationalism, objectivism, and solipsism, idealism. Our purpose in this book has been to find a via media, to understand the regularity of the world we are experiencing at every moment, but without any point of reference independent of ourselves that would give certainty to our descriptions and cognitive assertions. Indeed, the whole mechanism of generating ourselves as describers and observers tells us that our world, as the world which we bring forth in our coexistence with others, will always have precisely that mixture of regularity and mutability, that combination of solidity and shifting sand, so typical of human experience when we look at it up close. So there are uh, two things of note about what they said. Uh, you know, so, so one obviously is, is what I just mentioned, navigating the fundamental tension between two opposed states is the only real means of pursuing knowledge, in this case, knowledge about knowledge and the human mind. Uh, but also there's kind of like an ethical or spiritual framework, a, a state of being that's being referred to here, wherein they kind of describe, you know, or at least sort of touch on the kind of like emotional and subjective reality of fastidiously pursuing something that one knows they will never entirely attain, right? Um, and Axel talks about it too, saying of this other mathematician, Nicholas of Cusa was an ecclesiastic and mathematician who studied circles and polygons and even tried to square the circle. He became a cardinal but spent many years studying mathematical problems of antiquity. Nicholas likened the knowledge of God to a circle. He visualized human knowledge as a polygon inscribed within the circle. From these principles, Nicholas constructed a limit argument whereby as human knowledge increases, the polygon gains more and more sides, their number approaching 
infinity. But Nicholas concluded that no matter how much such knowledge grows, it can never reach God's knowledge in the same way that an inscribed polygon never actually becomes the circle, no matter how many sides it has. So, you know, the, the notion of pursuing a limit that we learned in calculus, um, you know, I, you never attain it, but you relentlessly, ceaselessly pursue it. And to make one more argument in favor of this notion that it's not simply our minds that navigate this tension, but that reality itself does, the uh, systems theory-oriented biologists Ricard Soleil and Brian Goodwin in Signs of Life, How Complexity Pervades Biology, a book I make fairly frequent reference to, uh, argues something very similar, that, that complexity, um, you know, in their, in their phrasing, uh, should be thought of as a very narrow passage between opposed states of order and disorder. Um, and of course, when, when they're talking about complexity, they're, you know, they're, they're talking about everything that we, you know, everything that comprises existence as we think of it in a, a meaningful sense. We, we could imagine a reality that isn't complex, but we can't imagine inhabiting a reality that isn't complex because we're complex. Um, and so they say that they um, are using, of course, you know, being systems theorists, they're using like a high level of, of abstraction to, to make a point that they think can apply to everything from brain activity to the growth of cities, et cetera, et cetera, the behavior of ecosystems, you know, and so these are... Um, Pretty, pretty classic, classic system stuff. We've got, you know, some, uh, some models that, um, you know, are like cellular automata or whatever, you know, these, these grids where, um, every given cell can either be on or off, inhabited or uninhabited, black or white, however you want to think about it, depending on what phenomenon it is supposed to refer to. And, you know, they, so they show these three states and one is order in which, um, there's a perfect alternation of every node in the network, you know, on, off, black, white, um, at utterly regular intervals. So there's that. It's certainly ordered, but nothing interesting is happening. And then there's disorder, where there's a completely random pattern of on, off, black, white uh, cells in, in the grid. And then there's complexity. And the thing that I want to point out is that, you know, so the, the complexity has shapes um, within it that are um, very discernible and the shapes repeat and it's self-similar, right? It's a fractal object. So there's, you can find these shapes comprising uh, similar shapes at greater and lesser scale, you know, at greater scales. Um, and uh, what I want to point out though, mathematically is that the complexity that they, um, that they model here in the cellular automata is something that mathematically just happens for a moment when they assign parameters, when they, you know, construct the model so that it behaves in a certain way following some rule or another so that the cells are on or off, black or white. Um, there is a very, very, very narrow range of parameters between order and disorder that produces the complexity. It's a, a tiny moment on the x-axis, right, where, where suddenly, you know, we get this intermediary, uh, this intermediary state that is neither order nor disorder where everything happens that we would consider, you know, 
existence that 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 where where all the dynamics that allow us to inhabit a world full of interesting phenomena occur. Uh, so what they say is entropy and disorder grow together. But nature also abounds in ordered structures. From geology, we know that most minerals are stable structures organized in different lattice configurations. Ice is nothing but water molecules, regularly placed as a lattice and interacting through chemical and hydrogen bonds, though we cannot predict such a structure from the quantum mechanical properties of the single water molecule. When we look at snow crystals on a window, we look at a highly ordered structure. But if we look closely, complexity also involves both order and disorder. Ecosystems show well-defined regularities, but populations often fluctuate wildly. The brain stores extraordinary amounts of information, but its activity, as revealed by an electroencephalogram, is far from regular. Our cities are large-scale structures with a long history, but their growth is often almost organic, and we know that they can eventually disappear. Thus, complexity is neither complete order nor complete disorder. To illustrate this rough idea, let us for a moment examine the patterns shown in figure 2.2. And then, uh, the, you know, the figure des uh, uh, describes what I just did. Figure 2.2a shows a very ordered crystal-like structure. We can infer the whole pattern from just a very small part of it. Figure 2c shows a totally random pattern. It has been obtained by repeatedly tossing a coin. Each time we get a head, we plot a white square, and if a tail, we plot a black square. Although this pattern is entirely random, the same statistical features are reproduced over and over at all scales of observation. But now, let us examine figure 2.2b. The structure is neither totally random nor completely ordered. We observe triangles of many different sizes, and in between, we can see domains of disorder. We perceive some underlying structure at many different scales. This pattern is complex. It cannot be described in terms of a simple extrapolation of a few basic regularities. It displays non-trivial correlations that are not reducible to smaller, more fundamental units. This is, in fact, an example of a fractal object. The term fractal was first coined by Benoit Mandelbrot to describe geometrical structures with features of all length scales. Mandelbrot made the surprising observation that nature abounds in such fractal or self-similar objects. Nature thus abounds in complex structures, but defining and measuring complexity is not a trivial problem. Entropy is not a good measure, since it increases with disorder, so a dead organism would be more complex than a living one. A properly defined complexity measure, C, should reach its maximum at some intermediate level between the order of a perfect crystal and the disorder of a gas. This intuitive observation will remain largely philosophical without a theoretical framework with which to quantify it. In this chapter, we present a whole class of phenomena involving the transition from order to disorder, where the point of maximal complexity is sharply defined. This is where complexity lives. I know that I have mentioned this uh, this passage from this book before. I don't think I had read the quote before. So there's that. Three, three arguments for the notion of our, not just our perceptions of the world, but the, you know, that, that uh, the anatomical structures and the perceptual mechanisms that, that we possess actually kind of reflect the nature of reality in some very non-trivial way. And the fact that we fundamentally have to pursue knowledge 
by navigating opposed states reflects the fact that that's actually how the universe itself is constructed. And we wouldn't be here looking at it if it were any other way. This is fucking science! This is fucking science! This is fucking science! This is fucking science! This is fucking Okay, so that all is, you know, a fair amount of what even is reality and a whole lot of snakes and blood and fire. And admittedly, there's going to be some more of that. But so let me try to concisely and directly state what this has to do with the relationship between science and power. Which, um, in 2017, as I was really starting to first come to terms with a new magnitude of ecological grief, I'll just say, um, I, I wrote something which I unfortunately can't read from because I no longer have, but, you know, wrote and put somewhere on the internet a piece called Finding the Right Framing for We're All Going to Die, Tragedy and Absurdity in Climate Communications. And, uh, in that piece, uh, a fundamental theme, uh, the, the departure point for my whole analysis was that it really does seem like apocalyptic cults were a prominent feature of the human experience throughout the course of the whole human journey until right around the time of the apocalypse, at which point people seem to kind of shut that capacity down. Um, you know, something very, very interesting happens as as we approach the, you know, as we approach the real version of the thing that people have expended so much emotional energy um, on the fake versions of where it's, I think it's just really overwhelming and, and people kind of can't engage it. Um, and right, yeah, not not a novel conclusion or anything. Um, but the point that I was trying to make is that clearly there's some, you know, when we when we look at people doing, um, you know, like large scale social behavior that is um, dire catastrophe or deeply disappointing or whatever, you know, of course, there's essentially two possibilities. One is that this is an intrinsic feature of the human experience or an intrinsic feature of uh, the existence of any, you know, complex species, you know, like behaviorally complex species we could imagine evolving or, or whatever. Or, you know, we can look for uh, cases of the human experience where this wasn't true. And, um, so, you know, with so many efforts at social transformation, a, uh, a fundamental distinction between how I approach these questions and the, you know, the sort of like core assumptions and guiding theories that I would encounter in social movements would be, you know, I would feel like people were trying to make moral arguments or, or whatever in favor of... Um, their position and there wasn't really any great sort of empirical record of people responding in mass to uh to them in ways that the, the we would want and you know so i would be like but let's look for ways that people have behaved that are more or less in accord or you know behaved or perceived things that are more or less in accord with our our program and our strategy, you know, always with that thing that there has never been a documented case. There's many documented cases of 
colonists in uh, North America defecting to indigenous populations in exactly zero recorded instances of the, the reverse. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, asking the question like, well, how can we position a, in opposition to the dominant sociopolitical trajectory that provides something, you know, that provides that choice in some sense or another, the choice of whether do you want to go to work or do you want to live wild and free, you know, where we actually have a record of people actually making the decision we would want them to make. And um, so I was talking about how it's not like it might feel as we undergo, you know, the witnessing the collapse of the global ecosystem is a sufficient inducement to a sense of great bizarre wonder and despair on on its own terms, certainly, but made all the more poignantly bizarre and tragic by the fact that it's an experience that if you're having it, you tend to be having in isolation. But it's not as if people are like psychologically incapable in some totally fundamental, inexorable sense of perceiving collapse and deeply, deeply emotionally responding to it. In fact, it seems to be something that lives somewhere in the realm of pretty fundamental human motivations. It's not just that, you know, people have acknowledged their sense of impending apocalypse before, but they've, you know, um, had profound, had profound responses to it in some cases that had a sort of like coordinated collective quality, right? There have been a lot of apocalyptic cults. There have been a lot of phases where everybody was dancing in the streets waiting for it, you know, for the sky to rain fire or whatever. Um, and uh, so, the, you know, the question of power in relation to this comes down to this question of what psychological states we are accessing or referencing or attempting to induce or whatever when we talk about collapse. And um, the sense that I have, which I also talked about in that episode, do not worship the deities that came before the fire, originally a piece for Dark Mountain, that um, what we are experiencing is inherently mythological I don't mean to say that it has a supernatural component necessarily. I mean that in the sense that there is a state of, of perception and a state of being that uh, relates to you know the, this realm of the mythic, and that's where we are. <laughs> that's what's happening right now. We are, you know, we are in the end of the world, or we are in the story of the end of the world. And the story of it is something that the human mind is more capable of actually engaging. And so, you know, the question then becomes if publishing papers in Nature, like the one I just read about global phytoplankton declines, isn't what is capturing people's attention or catalyzing these perceptual and behavioral capacities that we absolutely do possess, then what would? And... Um, so this question then becomes, you know, we have been on this journey at many points in this podcast of talking about the relationship between science and power. And in the scientific militant series, I addressed more the strategy of science communication and its ongoing failures um, 
to sort of like meaningfully encompass the psychological variation that humanity exhibits and the ways in which uh, people are inhabiting radically different frames that um, one simply has to appeal to or, you know, acknowledge and inhabit in some fashion or another to communicate with people. And then in the Varieties of Scientific Revolution series, I more was focused on uh, science itself, right? So, you know, discussing the ideological discipline that exists in the academy, which I really do want to earnestly acknowledge with uh, great, great gratitude and respect. That is a discipline that's being broken by entities like scientists rebel and all the rest who, you know, have, have gotten to the point where, you know, they're scientists after all. It's just pretty empirically obvious that, um, that just like dispassionately relating facts for, you know, a, a public and a set of policymakers who are all equipotentially equipped to integrate this information and act on it is a ridiculous, ridiculous approach, and it will never work. Um, and so, you know, we talked about that, and then we talked about in the second part of that series, uh, scientists kind of mapping out their own minds, examining how um, different uh, types of people inhabit different echelons of the academy and that different sort of psychological tendencies uh, generate different worldviews and scientific theories and, you know, orient towards different disciplines and models of the universe uh, within disciplines and sub-sub-tendencies within disciplines and all the rest. Um, and now, I guess, I feel like it's time to talk about the relation, you know, for science to examine in the most fundamental sense what it is and what reality is and how a re-sort of, ex you know, an examination um, of and a, a sort of like refinement of the way that science approaches knowledge and, you know, the assumptions it makes about the nature of reality can either connect it with um, the sort of like mythic states of awareness that I think are necessary to communicate in and for people to inhabit to wake up from this insane, bizarre, surreal slumber they're in where they just act like what's happening isn't happening, where, you know, the sky is falling and it just doesn't register at all for most people. Um, you know, where, where, where science has to kind of like come to terms with, um, with those mythic states of awareness, which I think implies uh, connecting with these, uh, these paths that people go down over and over again within science and mathematics. Uh, like I just described, you know, like uh, Cantor is not alone. A, you know, a lot of different researchers, whether it drove them over the brink of madness or not, you know, so many disciplines, so much of our knowledge gets to a point where I would say the kind of like core sort of information processing style that we associate with uh, 
the scientific project stops really making sense. And we're in this, you know, this strange realm that happens over and over again where scientists are talking about their conclusions. But I guess just to put it, phrase it as simply as possible, it kind of doesn't sound very scientific. It sounds like sort of like subversive and like non-Western and anti-modern or something or other, right? And how um, these things shouldn't be just kind of like regarded as how, here's what I want to say is that I ultimately don't think if we ask what science is that um, as it's as an institutional practice in recent history, um, we can actually reduce it to something like um, the degree of empirical foundations or methodological rigor that is associated with the pursuit of knowledge. I think that there is something sort of more circumscribed that um, that ends up uh, comprising institutional science. I think that there are forms of discipline involved and sort of like uh, frames that exclude important information about the world and and types of awareness with which one would pursue that information that have nothing to do with the extent to which a phenomenon is, you know, empirically validated and has nothing to do with the, uh, the methodological rigor with which one pursues uh, knowledge of that phenomenon. This is fucking science! This is fucking science! This is fucking science! This is fucking science! This is fucking so what do you say we ground what I've been saying in a sort of like explicit strategic discussion? Um, if you recall, I guess it was at the beginning of the Varieties of Scientific Revolution series, I talked about, you know, like a frame we can use for, for discussing all of this, for, you know, the relationship between science and power is a... Uh, it's the year is 2250 or whatever. And, you know, for all the damage that we have already done to the world, and for as much as life is going to have to exhibit some radical adaptation to continue in any form at all for any of us, our species or any other, let's imagine that, you know, a couple centuries from now, um, some people and some other organisms have survived. And decisions about how uh, humanity interacts with the global ecosystem and everything else is in part shaped by some kind of like council of science, you know, some, some kind of deliberative body that, right, and how, how this is in any science fiction future we imagine where anything makes it through the extraordinarily narrow passage of the future, uh, I mean, rather of the present and the, the near future, um, that, you know, we have to imagine that at some point the nature of science changes such that it becomes no longer captured by the uh, narcissistic ravings of idiots who currently wield power. And, um, you know, where institutional science is no longer acquiescent to the existing power structure. So I want to I tie that in to uh, conceivable political strategies uh, that, you know, in the present moment. And um, I do want to, I, I want to note, because people have such a, there is such a range of perceptions 
about where we are at ecologically right this very second and what is kind of inevitable, like what consequences we're already going to inevitably face. Um, and I want to say that I think anything we do, because I fall into a more ecologically pessimistic uh, you know, end, like, uh, portion of that range of perceptions than many, uh, certainly than you know, the mainstream media or something like that. Uh, I don't think human extinction, for instance, is inevitable, but I also don't think that there's going to be anything remotely resembling 8 billion people on this planet in you know, a matter of like a generation or two's time. Um, I would say that anything that we do has to be kind of durable across a very wide range of conceivable future outcomes, right? So what we do should both be somewhat useful for allowing us to survive, whether that's indefinitely into the glorious, you know, continuation of the evolutionary trajectory well into the future, or whether that's for a few months or years longer than we would otherwise persist if, uh, if we did nothing. Um, and that at the same time, what we do should be something that gives, that mitigates the suffering of confronting the uh, collapse that we're in um, and gives meaning and, a, you know, gives, gives expression to the fundamental uh, innate sense of interconnectedness of all things that we are born with. Um, and I think that some of what I'm talking about really does achieve that, uh, the, you know, this idea that uh, science has to tap into the sort of like mythical perceptual framework that uh, apocalypse inevitably invokes, right? Obviously, that ties in very strongly to um, the the sort of like the need that a any political program or whatever has to connect with uh, with meaning to be durable across, you know, the range of outcomes where things just get worse and worse and we all die, um, right? It, it, it allows for a, a level of connection between ourselves and one another and other beings that we might otherwise lack. Um, you know, it's sort of like, well, why not have a religious movement at the very end? But let's not have a religious movement with a narcissistic guru spouting supernatural nonsense. Let's have a religious movement that honors the real world, right? Um, as, it, as it goes away. Um, and then... At the same time, what I'm talking about would be a way of guaranteeing the survival of the most for the longest, uh, whether that's a, still a very short-term prospect or not. Um, and so, I, you know, as one could probably infer from other podcasts or to some extent that I've already said explicitly in other podcasts, I believe that in, so in past um, instances of like pretty successful widespread social transformation along egalitarian lines, like let's say if you're like me, you're, you're haunted by the Spanish Civil War, right? Um, and the, the fact that what they were doing actually really did kind of work. It was just sort of, it was the asymmetry of aggression between themselves and the fascists that really sealed the fate of that enterprise. And the fact that there were all of these external powers that were willing to, um, you know, send material support in the form of like tanks and planes to um, authoritarian echelons, uh, and but that there really wasn't anybody at all who wanted to give the anarchists guns or anything like that. 
um, is, is ultimately what sealed their fate, but that the actual political program that was being implemented in the regions where anti-authoritarians took control, um, you know, it's like, it's like every time I read a book about it, another book about it, I'm really struck by the sense that what they were doing was actually working and it, it stays with you, you know, those, those moments where you see that there's real possibility out there for a life that's actually different than the one we're living. That, that stuff is what makes a lifelong revolutionary. Um, but, you know, if you look at something like the Spanish Civil War, it's like in the old paradigm, people were essentially trying to restructure the social relations that existed around uh, extant industries and modes of production, as it were, right? So you can see how, um, if you read, I'll, I'll put it in the bibliography right now, I've been slowly making my way for the past like month through this book, Collectives in the Spanish Revolution by Gaston Laval. And um, he talks about uh, the, the massive extent of the groundwork that was done for really decades and decades and decades, for at least like 60 years or so before their program really got to be implemented in the 1930s, how, you know, ever since at least like the first international in the 19th century, they were really laying this groundwork. But the, the point is, is that the character that it possessed was always of transforming existing industries and existing um, economic echelons according to these more egalitarian lines, right? It's just workers taking over the production in a given factory, um, agricultural laborers taking over, you know, like becoming the owners of the land that they worked, et cetera, et cetera. And I would argue that we have to, well, first of all, of course, we live, you know, we live in a society subject to the post-materialist shift. And so even though we're increasingly experiencing scarcity, people decreasingly uh, define themselves according to any kind of common economic interest or, you know, shared vocation or uh, uh, shared geography or anything of that nature. Um, and so, you know, first of all, like, I, it's, that's just like, really, that was viable in a way that it's not now in the early 20th and late 19th centuries. Um, and but but also, I, I think that we're just in a different time now where that's not really the question, right? The question isn't how do we make Twitter, still Twitter, but, you know, organized along egalitarian lines or whatever. I think that we have generated at this point what any reasonable political uh, sort of program would acknowledge is a completely absurd amount of utterly superfluous, meaningless economic activity. And it doesn't all need to be restructured. A lot of it just needs to go away. And that the way to engage in something vaguely, vaguely analogous to what uh, those revolutionaries in Spain did for all those decades before the Spanish Civil War that allowed them to actually substantially transform social relations and shift the dynamics of power when the opportunity came um, would be to not look at existing industries and ask how to reconfigure them, but to make inventories of core human needs that actually do need to be met you know, for like food and shelter and I guess maybe some bare minimum of energy and things of that, things of that nature. Um, and to talk about how to, you know, to, to just draw a series of circles, let's say, on a map and, and be like the, the fundamental unit of social organization that we're talking about is just whoever's in this circle and how they access resources. 
um, and to begin to try to create a set of parallel institutions that are constituted around meeting those needs. Um, and a set of parallel institutions that are constituted around all the sort of like decision-making processes and whatnot that would go into um, a sort of like local economy of that of that variety. And this is where we can say that, you know, the, the social structure that one would be militating for sort of emerges naturally, in a sense, from an inventory of resources and then, you know, considerations about what kind of decision-making structures and uh, whatnot um, would allow us to access those resources and distribute them in an equitable way, et cetera, et cetera. Which, you know, of course, is very different than being like, let's organize the steel mill. Maybe the steel mill doesn't need to exist, but the people who used to work there do, in fact, need to eat, right? But then, of course, if we all sort of disaggregate from this global social unit that we're currently, uh, without our con consent, you know, completely inextricably bound up in, into smaller and smaller social units um, oriented towards minimal subsistence activities within a given area, um, if we, uh, if you know, if we take the path that is so often sort of regarded as the only real viable strategy for those who want to escape hierarchical domination of just sort of uh, fleeing from, you know, these large-scale complex social orders, um, you know, and disaggregating into something that um, is too small to manage and name and control, right? You know, if we take the James Scott approach in books like The Art of Not Being Governed um, and Against the Grain, and we just kind of evade the, the structures of domination, um, we're, we're left with questions like, well, who's going to turn off the nuclear power plants and, and things like that, right? We have, we have indeed created a, a world of extreme perils, right? Who's going to turn off the nuclear power plants and, and what sort of, you know, coordinating bodies are going to exist to try to undo or mitigate some of the damage that's been done to this world such that survival is remotely feasible, um, and, we, you know, so we quickly see a, a, a sort of tension emerge that often emerges in um, hyper-local decision-making structures being implemented as, as a political a solution to a political problem, which is that, you know, there, there has to be sort of like a capacity for large-scale coordination of at least some types of activity and some types of decisions um, within a framework that also supports, you know, hyper-local decision-making. So, of course, like, there's endless, like, theory and more refined terminology about this that, than I'm going to use, but I feel like all, all of these, you know, this tension is always attempted to be resolved through some version of sending people from one meeting to, you know, sending a delegate from one meeting to an even bigger meeting of, you know, delegates from the smaller meetings. So, you know, it's like whatever the initial social units are, whether it's this is everybody who works in an industry or this is everybody who works in a village. It's like those people have a meeting, they send a delegate to a bigger meeting, et cetera, et cetera. So with respect to the issues we're talking about, you know, the who's going to turn off the nuclear power plants, who's going to, who's going to like take methane out of the atmosphere, whatever, whatever the, uh, you know, whatever the path forward is. We have this tension here between, you know, the, the 
the local sort of like social units that are necessary for just kind of like bare minimum survival to occur. The, the fact that we have to disaggregate into such units in order to just like achieve sort of bare minimum survival um, in the immediate sense. But then we also need there to be these, you know, these broader, more global decision-making structures. And uh, it's hard to know what all exactly um, a lot of that might look like, but I do think that there's a, a very serious question to ask ourselves in all that, which is, you know, how do people regard science? Because what any, you know, what navigating the any form of that tension would come down to is that people would have to really feel like science and scientists were something that they trusted enough to accord a certain level of this just really gets into the relationship between specialization and power in a way but you know accord a certain level of like power and discretion to make decisions and use resources in certain ways over others i mean right you know like w w one can easily see some simple some some ways that this would imply certain types of inequalities for sure if for instance almost nobody is using fossil fuels for any purpose but there are like expeditions to uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna roll with the power plants melting down thing until it stops feeling compelling because to me that does kind of seem like how the world is gonna end right is that the the chaos is gonna get too great for the institutions that maintain nuclear power plants to continue to function and then all those storms and fires interacting with all that dangerous deteriorating infrastructure. Um, so, you know, to get to the melting down nuclear power plant, some scientists have to use some fossil fuels or whatever. And uh, that is the kind of thing that, you know, feels real reasonable to me to ask people to make an exception for. But to the people being asked to make the exception, uh, they, they would really need to feel like... Um, like the people doing that work and engaged in those highly specialized tasks um, really were somehow operating in the collective, you know, in a, a broader, more collective interest. And so, of course, this would imply a radical reconfiguration of just what people think of when they think of science, like what it uh, just like kind of how it lands in, you know, viscerally for them when somebody says the very word science or scientist, you know? And I haven't made a secret of it. I, I've said it in the past that I, I think that the, the preservation, you know, the perpetuation, the continuance of existence would require something that was like a scientific, but also a sort of religious, but also sort of a military order. Um, and, you know, I, I, that gets into this question of again, the relationship between science and the mythical and giving people the sense, because, okay, because again, we can always ask this question, like, people aren't behaving or responding to a situation or, you know, having the perceptions that would be conducive to a behavior that we would like to see. And then we have to ask the question, like, okay, but is this just like outside the scope of human experience? And certainly, if, um, you know, if, if the like listening to scientists thing doesn't seem like it's going particularly well, if science communication could be pretty aptly described as an absolute empirical failure with respect to the ecological crisis, um, 
It's certainly not the case that it's never been true that societies had people with specialized knowledge that they accorded real power to. And if we look at so many traditional societies, that's a very, very central feature, right? You know, if we look at all all the, the shamans and the kind of societies that have them or all the, you know, if we if we read Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars and Verking Gedericks is coming on behalf of like a huge number of different Celtic tribes, but, you know, as a member of the Druidic order to say, the you know, I'm, I'm operating on behalf of all my people or whatever. We can see times where specialized forms of knowledge and, you know, people receiving, in, like in the case of Druids, decades of instruction in, in all of this archaic, uh, you know, all this archaic knowledge or whatever is actually a real path to real power within their societies. And I and, you know, let's, I'm, I'm reading an ethnography right now, but, or I don't know, like a history or something by that anthropologist Clifford Geertz about what he calls the theater state in Bali in the 19th century, which is, you know, as good a window into it uh, as any of the reality that spectacle and um, entertainment and uh, the capacity to dazzle people have always been one of the forms of power that are out there, right, along with physical domination and, um, you know, like outright explicit coercion and along with like sort of technical competence of some variety or another. Um, in, in my tripartite scheme, the, you know, the power dynamics that we inhabit in this society are, um, are power dynamics generated by narcissists, technocrats, and um, strongmen. You know, but the, that, let's just acknowledge that not every historical instance that we can stumble across of people being like, I have specialized knowledge, give me power, is totally something that we would want to uncritically embrace. Okay, you know. Um, but having acknowledged that, it, the, the point is, is that there is something deep within the human, within human psychology that, that makes, that wherein this makes sense, right? Where there's a switch that can be flipped, where people do seem to, on some level, want to accept that there are certain types of specialized knowledge that they don't possess, um, where those who do have to exercise certain forms of power and make certain like types of decisions that, you know, they're not coercing anybody into accepting, but that people do in fact want to accept because they understand the nature of the power being wielded and the specialized knowledge being wielded. Right. I, I hope that makes sense. Um, and so we could see this long, slow, conceivable process of trying to kind of reconstitute what science and scientists even are in the minds of people in general. This is fucking science! 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 So if we're, uh, you know, if we're asking ourselves how, uh, what, you know, what could help such an effort and what indeed barriers exist, um, I, it's worth noting that if I say manual labor, it sounds like I'm writing policy or doing science or something. And if I say handiwork, it sounds like I haven't gotten off the bar stool since I got injured in the machining shop a while ago all that often, right? If I say aquatic entity, it sounds like I'm a scientist. And if I say watery thing, that makes me sound like kind of an idiot. Of course, these formulations mean the exact, literal, identical thing. But 
in one case, the words are derived from Latin, and so it sounds academic. And in the other case, they're derived from the Germanic, you know, the Germanic roots that are present in the English language, and it doesn't. Um, right? So, you know, that distinction reflects the fact that at one point in universities all over Europe, Latin was spoken not because it conveys scientific concepts with any greater or, you know, other academic concepts with any greater clarity or concision or anything like that, but because other people didn't speak it. So it was a way to intentionally and deliberately, you know, segregate um, the knowledge specialists from everybody else. And this is a cross-culturally very durable phenomenon, right? Um, there is, I believe it is uh, Jan Puvel's comparative mythology, which should probably really be called comparative Indo-European mythology because that's exclusively what it's about. But uh, in that book, I think, is where I first read this claim that in a, many languages the world over, there is a, like, a high and a low mode of speech. Um, you know, the, the high being reserved for formal occasions, for, you know, prestigious, you know, individuals and um, entities and things like that. And, you know, I, I would say that science definitely has a little bit of a high speech problem um, and that the, that that basic reality that it comes that so much of the scientific terminology we still use or just like terminological flourishes that we employ that feel smarter, sophisticated um, are really just because they're like Latin derived terms for things we ha also have other words for. Not that I mean, not that I think one should actually go through their, uh, you know, their entire vocabulary and weed out, <laughs> weed out the etymological influences of Latin or anything like that. I'm merely using it as an illustration that there are ways in which as much as I know that there are very earnest, very well-meaning scientists who are desperately actually trying to communicate with people um, and connect with, you know, some some of their like, you know, sort of core emotional, psychological um, sense, you know, priorities or whatever, that um, there, there really is a little bit of a problem where science and scientists have deliberately insulated themselves and differentiated themselves from normal human experience in the, you know, the, the lowly general population and that ends up being um, a barrier to what people who are engaged in science communication about the ecological crisis are trying to achieve. But probably even more fundamentally, if it is true, as Jordan Peterson says, um, and you know, for for as much as someday, someday I'm going to do a whole episode making fun of Jordan Peterson. Someday I really will. Um, but you know. For as much as I have a whole episode's worth of material making fun of Jordan Peterson, he's not wrong about this when he says that all leftists have to do is say one wrong thing. And um, people assume that their whole paradigm is nonsense, right? Um, and go looking for answers about the nature of the world and our lives within it elsewhere. Um, you know, especially if they can see how the one wrong thing that they've said um, is a manifestation of like a, a deeper tendency of a commitment to a certain uh, form of reasoning or a certain type of truth at the expense of others. 
Uh, right, you know, so it's like if the one wrong thing that leftists say is that behavioral genetics isn't real and they say it because they're afraid that acknowledging innate distinctions between people means that the people who are currently administering, you know, at the top of the hierarchies that we inhabit somehow should be there, which is actually just their own version of the naturalistic fallacy. Um, you know, it's it's not at all apparent to me that the that the power systems we inhabit are good or viable in, in any regard whatsoever. So it's not at all, you know, it's doubly not apparent to me that the kinds of people who tend to do well within these systems are people who in particular deserve to be, you know, all powerful over all the rest of us or the only people who survive the apocalypse they're creating or whatever. Um, you know, but like, it's pretty easy for a lot of people to see the sort of like underlying layer of emotional need, psychological need that precipitates that conclusion that behavioral genetics isn't real. And so if a leftist says that and somebody else can just see how that's both not true and meets the need of the person who's saying it, they're going to tend to disregard everything else they hear from that source. Um, I would say that that is actually truly a fundamental problem with science and science communication now that really does have to be acknowledged. This thing that people do where they say, you know, there's a scientific method, everybody who says they're practicing science uh, applies it, and, you know, it creates these, like, conclusions that there's consensus about. Um, they just, like, kind of really need to stop doing that. There's, there's plenty. There's plenty of um, mutually irreconcilable conclusions that have been come to by people claiming the scientific method. And there's plenty of simply wrong things that have been said by people who are claiming scientific expertise. For people to keep using I'm a scientist as a, you know, as a, a means of deferring from actually kind of like justifying what they're saying. And this actually goes both ways to get back into this, you know, science has to, if it's going to really deeply touch on the experiential states that people inhabit and capture some of the behavioral and perceptual potential that people do in fact possess towards a useful end, um, I, you know, it, it should be acknowledged that it's not only true that assertions have been made by people claiming the scientific method that really aren't valid and that everybody can kind of see aren't valid, but it's also true that a lot of things that actually are very compelling that seem to, again, you know, be very like empirically verifiable and can be pursued with methodological rigor that are sort of outside of the purview of what it is we mean when we say science, which again is not, I think, reducible to the degree of empirical validity or methodological rigor that we might associate with any, you know, per, with pursuit of knowledge of any given thing. So to give some sense of what I mean, let's look at how the mainstream of science as an institutional practice regards psychiatry on the one hand, and then two, you know, two realms of inquiry on the other, um, the, you know, like inquiries into so-called extrasensory perception or parapsychology or however one wants to, uh, to characterize it. 
and, you know, research into Sasquatch or Yeti or whatever one wants to call that. Um, and it is my earnest claim that um, psychiatry is an example of something that has very few empirical foundations and has been approached with very little methodological rigor, but that nonetheless, even, even among people who might acknowledge that, who might, you know, have arguments like those I presented in that episode, Addiction, Madness, and Despair, Part 2, Madness, um, you know, even people, even the, the many like neuroscientists and other types of researchers who are critiquing the, you know, the wholesale, ut like utterly arbitrary nature of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, right? Um, very few of them would say like, this just obviously isn't science. It's, it's strange. It's kind of interesting because if you ask one of those people for a definition of science, they will almost invariably invoke some kind of explanation that involves empirical foundations and methodological rigor. But there's so many things like this where, you know, the APA just made up the DSM. They just made it up. Um, and, you know, people are, people are able to point that out. But somehow, it still doesn't feel, and this is the point, right, is that there's, there's something else. There's some other, you know, there's some other thing that's being invoked in the modern context when we say science than, than that, than these descriptions of what it is that we would tend to provide. Because it doesn't feel like it's not science if we read the DSM. It just feels like science that happened to be wrong, you know? Um, but then likewise, even if people exhaustively document their research into whether in fact people can, um, you know, guess the shapes printed on cards that are hidden by envelopes or predict accurately when somebody is staring at them or whatever with, you know, over and over and over again with like great statistical power so that, you know, the, the probability of these observations being made purely by chance is one in 10 to the, you know, 15th power or something like tiny, tiny, tiny probabilities, things that, you know, like, like can, can establish improbabilities well, well, well beyond any probability threshold that would be set for accepting any other conclusion. It still doesn't quite feel like science, right? For people to be inquiring about whether people can communicate directly with their minds. Um, but if we do, in fact, use um, a, you know, a, a definition of science that truly just relies on, you know, methodological rigor and empiricism, um, there's plenty of scientific evidence that people do, in fact, simply communicate with their minds or whatever. Through, through some medium, we don't currently have any way to identify. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll put some, I'll put some like papers in the bibliography or whatever. Let's see, if you want, if you want a good introduction to this, that's like a book for a popular audience, I guess that Rupert Sheldrake book, The Sense of Being Stared At, is probably a good place to start. Um, if you want to watch a great documentary about this, uh, because a lot of what I'm talking about with institutional science and, and what it encompasses and doesn't, um, really is a little bit different. You know, again, we can see how the, none of this is inevitable or whatever. Um, it really played out a little bit differently in parallel to the way it did in the West in the Soviet Union and, and Russia. Um, 
And so the, the research into psychic phenomenon was a little more um, kind of like above ground and respectable in the USSR, even though during the Cold War, both the USSR and the United States engaged in very, very, very extensive psychic research. And, um, and on both sides found um, some pretty remarkable results. It was a little more above ground in the Soviet Union, uh, as, was, as were inquiries into whether, you know, abominable snowmen or yetis or whatever. Oh, what, what is the Russian term? Alma something. Sometimes they're just called almas, I believe. But, um, you know, as was scientific inquiries into, uh, into Yeti or Sasquatch or whatever. Um, the kind of like the equivalent of the National Academy of Sciences undertook inquiries into that in the mid 20th century. Uh, hard to imagine something similar happening in the United States. Um, but then if you want to read um, like proper science per se, about this, I have this decent book um, put out by Taylor and Francis, that publisher, right? So we're, you know, this, this is just like normal science publishing um, that collects a bunch of papers on this topic from over the course of a century or so, where people have been producing, uh, you know, replicable, statistically significant results through different experimental paradigms. And um, where, you know, like the, there's papers in this book where they do meta-analyses of a bunch of different papers into, into psychic phenomena. And, you know, so they come up with p-values for the observations that are made paper to paper that are literally like, you know, one in 10 to the, or times 10 to the negative, you know, or not, yeah, 10 to the negative, like 15th power and stuff like that. Right, these tiny, tiny, tiny p-values. Right, so the probability of observing uh, what you know what's been observed in all those studies by chance, if people really aren't communicating uh, through some unknown medium from mind to mind, are you know so much smaller than the probabilities that uh, other observations that we take for granted as you know foundational to science. Um, are. So, you know, it's like uh, people can feel how they want about it, but a, a lot of people that I personally know, certainly myself included, um, have, you know, have always had this, like, I have very, 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 very little of what anybody would tend to think explicitly of as a supernatural belief about anything, right? Um, but th this has just always been like a reality that I've confronted over and over again in life is that people seem to be able to communicate with one another uh, you know, a very good friend of mine, a childhood best friend or like adolescent best friend died like five years ago. And on the morning that I found out about that, the morning of the after the night it happened, um, you know, I woke up sobbing. Just I, my first reaction was that I just wanted to go look in the mirror because I wanted to see the expression of anguish on my face. And I woke up with my mind racing Um with all of these thoughts about the tragedy of being, you know, of the fact that so many people that I loved had died so young and, and all, all this stuff and like feeling this deep sense of injustice that so many beautiful people that I, you know, had encountered in this life had gone away so early. Um, and that's happened exactly one time ever in my life. And it happened to be on the morning after the one person ever in my life that I really considered a best friend, you know, when I was like 14, 15 year old punk rocker, uh, died. 
right? So, you know, when, when, when you have experience after experience after experience for your entire life like that, it becomes very hard not to think that there must be something there. And then if you, if your experience and observation is that that is somehow, that's like an empirical reality that somehow isn't scientific, right? But the claim that if somebody gets sad, it's because they were born with something wrong with their brains that can never be truly fixed. If that claim, even though there's no real evidence for it, is scientific, you can see how a certain type of person who encounters, you know, this set of disjunctions between what is science and what isn't would at a certain point just stop according science any particularly privileged legitimacy over any other like echelon of society or approach to knowledge that they might encounter, right? Um, and so that's the point of saying that science has to sort of reconstitute itself such that it becomes a more holistic practice that is capable of encompassing these realities that we encounter and observe with different types of information processing than the ones that we tend to think of as scientific when we talk about science as an institutional practice today. Because that style of reductive analysis, that, that mode we're in where we can use machine metaphors to describe uh, rea the reality we inhabit, where we can break things down into smaller and smaller components, and we can examine them in a mechanistic fashion. Um, that style of information processing is what we mean when we say science in some really real sense. And we have to, uh, you know, approach a, you know, to reconstitute science such that it is capable of orienting towards other truths that people just do encounter in their lives that invoke other forms of information processing, i.e. those forms of information processing that aren't particularly amenable to reductionism and to the, the disconnection of, of phenomena from one another, including um, you know, the disconnection of observer from observation, which has, I think, become this totally central thing in the language we use around science and all the rest. But, you know, but that once again, people encounter over and over again as not representing a comprehensive truth. You know, people can see that sometimes that the observer continually reasserts itself even within the discipline of science, i.e. within particle physics and, you know, realms like that where, you know, but also just in our daily lives, we see that sometimes the observer and the observed are mutually constituting one another, are engaged in a reciprocal relationship of some fashion or another. And then likewise, for as much as I don't really personally believe or disbelieve in uh, Sasquatch or anything like that, I haven't, you know, very much unlike with the absolute regularity, the, the very observable regularity and... Um, power of people's ability to communicate uh, through some medium we don't understand. I, you know, I haven't like seen Sasquatch over and over again and, you know, find myself and don't find myself wondering why on earth all these like very reliable observations aren't, uh, aren't being included within, you know, the mainstream of institutional science or anything like that. I do think that, you know, people so repeatedly and regularly report the same sort of general phenomenon that it, you know, it's at least a legitimate scientific question. 
but it's one that has just been more or less, you know, um, delineated as taboo. And so I'm, I'll put I'll put in the bibliography exactly one book about this, but you know I'm just making a point here. Um, so I have this Brian Sykes book, The Nature of the Beast, the first scientific evidence on the survival of ape men into modern times. Um, and Sykes is a population geneticist. He wrote that pretty famous book, The Seven Daughters of Eve, looking at you know the so-called mitochondrial Eve, looking at the mitochondrial DNA of all extant human populations, and um, you know, claiming that all of them have uh, maternal descent, you know, are descended from one of seven women who lived somewhere. I, I can't remember, you know, wh what the time frames were, but that everybody on earth is uh, the, the descendant of one of these seven women. And he says in the book, you know, just like the, the, the obvious thing that the which would feel from the actual explicit definitions were given of science, like the, the scientific thing to do. You know, where he's like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I have no, I have no like a priori uh, conviction that any of this is true or not true. But there's just like such a widespread, you know, tendency for people to make very similar observations that it certainly seems like it warrants scientific inquiry. But even he, the you know, the guy brave enough to say that or whatever, like he waited till the end of his career to look into uh, to look into phenomena. Um, like the Yeti, Sasquatch, whatever phenomena, um, because he knew it would like otherwise be very, very damaging to his career. And it doesn't make any sense for somebody to literally just ask a set of completely reasonable questions and to, you know, scientifically pursue an answer to them. I mean, he was just looking in all of those encounters that people have uh, reported of, of, of Bigfoot. If you know, he was just like looking for hair samples to do DNA tests on because that's what he specializes in. Um, and that just seems like a very reasonable, that's just, you know, that should be what we mean when we say science um, is, you know, like a willingness to investigate any given claim um, or any like um, apparent aspect of reality, you know, with extent like great methodological rigor this is fucking style okay so let me conclude with a story um that i think kind of decently illustrates this point that i'm making that in order to you know in order for science to be like a meaningful uh pursuit of knowledge about the nature of the reality we inhabit it must incorporate intuitive embodied knowledge. Uh, you know, it has to stop pretending that everything can be known through reductive analysis in which observer is separated from observation and that um, it, it has to incorporate intuitive embodied knowledge and gestalt perception. Um, you know, when I, and it's about my own kind of like path into and away from the, pra the institutional practice of science. As I've said before on this podcast, you know, I, I sort of like knew what I was doing with my life when I was 16 years old and I had this revelatory experience in the forest in Vermont. And um, I, at that moment, was very much like, I'd like to be an evolutionary biologist, OG, but what I want to study is dying, so maybe I should just fight for it to not be destroyed. Um, and that in and of itself feels like a good lesson, you know, like, again... 
I see scientists finally starting to really understand that um, acquiescing to the discipline imposed on them by their institutions isn't going to work and that they're going to have to directly contend for power in some fashion or another. So that's real good. But, you know, that was very like I really couldn't find scientists who were concerned with the ecological crisis who acknowledged that in the 90s. I just really couldn't. Um, and, uh, you know, so like that, even just like that sort of basic uh, conclusion, that thing that I comprehended that, you know, science has something to do with power, but that the institutional structures we inhabit when we do science often want to divest us of that power. That feels important, but more generally and applicably to this, uh, you know, this point I'm making about embracing different types, different modes of information processing, um, you know, the way that this subjective experience was initiated for me was by getting really curious about a group of ravens, common ravens, traveling through from a communal roost to somewhere that they were presumably accessing food or something, and then one of them getting curious about me and checking me out. And I think that what happened for me is something that there had been a number of experiences throughout my childhood and early life where um, I had found myself reciprocally gazing at an animal, like checking them out, checking me out, checking them out, checking me out. And I think that at that moment, I had this sort of transformative experience that I had had some version of a, of a number of times where I got the, the real impression that consciousness itself is that is the mental modeling of reciprocal observation. A, you know, a tangled feedback loop of observers, observing, observers, observing, observers, observing, observers. Um, but here's the thing, is that, you know, that process was initiated by looking into a raven's eyes and by seeing that it was seeing me, seeing it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there is some sense in which one could ask, and it would feel very scientific, how did I know, really, really, that the raven was observing me or paying any attention to me or curious about me or, you know, having some version of the same perception and experience that I was having? And the truth is that at a certain point, I can't really justify that statement very well, right? At least not in the terms that a lot of people would want for the statement to be allegedly scientific. But that's why I started this episode with that Conrad Lawrence quote about Gestalt perception. Yeah, I, th I think it's I think it's pretty apt that he that he wrote about that because that really is if you're observing animals, engaging in behaviors and having experiences, as much as you can quantify some of what they're doing, I saw this number of aggressive interactions, you know, I define an aggressive interaction as any time the teeth are bared um, you know, like the, a certain, this proportion of the teeth are revealed by the lip curling upward or whatever, like, you know, a growl that crosses this decibel threshold is issued, whatever, you know, like at the same time, so much of what you're seeing and you're saying you're seeing is just something that you're seeing that you just know is true because you're an animal too. And you can see perfectly well for all those injunctions against anthropomorphizing and all the rest that are just so ubiquitous within sciences involving observations of other species. 
you can just see that something similar to your own experience a lot of the time is happening in other animals. And obviously that just makes perfect sense because there's homologous structures in their brains and they're subject to a bunch of the same evolutionary contingencies as us. And, you know, it's like we share a number of features with all the other species we observe. Um, and that was one of those cases, right? That, that was an instance of gestalt perception. I didn't have any sort of, I can't provide you... I can't describe anything that I quantified that tells me that the raven was curious about me and observing me. I can just tell you that I knew that was what was happening at that moment. And um, that's just really all there is to it. And ultimately, whether people pretend that they use those types of perception in coming to the conclusions that they do or whether they pretend like they don't have to know anything that they simply know, that they can't rigorously justify or quantify, that everybody, everybody uses gestalt perception to come to any meaningful conclusion about the world whatsoever. So if we simply embrace gestalt perception, if we simply embrace the modes of information processing associated with simply knowing that an animal is curious about us and watching us, um, I think that we begin to approach knowledge by walking that very that razor's edge, that very narrow path between certain like reductive certainty and you know this kind of like holistic uh, sort of like unity with existence where nothing is fundamentally knowable, whatever. Um, I, I think that we we invoke and embrace the mythical states of consciousness to which the apocalypse inevitably, inherently orients us. And that, my friends, is a podcast. I mean, what, what am I supposed to say to them? I know it. I document it. All right? This is fucking science. You have to ask yourself, really? What am I going to say to them? I know it. I document it. All right? This is fucking science. This is fucking science. This is fucking science.